We are uh, finishing up the season of Advent. As I said before, we're also finishing up the book of Daniel that we've been studying this fall. So we're in the last chapter of Daniel now. If you have a Bible, open it up to Daniel chapter 12. I'm going to read Daniel 12 for us. It's also uh, up on the screen right above you. Listen now to God's word from Daniel 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars, forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the, bank, on the other bank of the stream. And someone said to me, excuse me, and someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the time of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and shall make themselves white and shall be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we're thankful for uh, this book that we're finishing up today. Lord, I, I just want to acknowledge that Though we have studied it uh, for weeks, we will never find the end of the depths of what you have to say to us. For Lord, we could dig into your word for millennia and never fully get everything about you. But Father, what a wonderful joy it is to know that you choose to reveal yourself to us. So we ask that you would do that for us today. Show us who you are more clearly through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there, uh, there are, are four words that every, every parent who's ever gone on a road trip with children and every child who's ever gone on a road trip with parents knows these four words. Are we there yet? These are the words that oftentimes come out of the mouths of children right about you know, the time that uh, the car is halfway down the driveway. Uh, I, I literally have had my children say, are we there yet, before we had left our neighborhood on a two-day trip, two-day trip. 
Are we there yet before we had left the neighborhood? And I get it, right? We want to know, like, when is it coming? If there's something good coming, when is it going to be here, especially if it's exciting? If we're going on a fun trip and I want to get to this place, when are we going to get there? That is very much the feeling, I think, of Daniel 12. It's very much the feeling that we get from actually much of these visions, many of these visions that God gives Daniel, and especially this last one, this idea, are we there yet? We really want to know if we're there. I think we can resonate with this, maybe even especially this year. As we've said before, right, we're celebrating Advent, embedded into Advent is this tension, this desire for something that hasn't come yet, a hope, a longing. But man, I think it really makes a lot of sense to us this year when a lot of us are really longing for something that we may not even be able to see this Christmas. Time with family who may have decided not to come in. Time with friends. The longing for regular relationship. The longing just kind of for regular activity and life without a mask on. There's a lot of longing in our hearts right now. It's good for us to ask that question, you know, are we there yet? And this actually really rang true, I think, with Daniel's original audience, too. Just think about the time in which Daniel lives. Uh, We're actually given these visions. Daniel gets these visions from the Lord over, over a series of a few years. But something really incredible happens over the series of those few years. We're told in chapter 10 that one of the visions he gets is in the third year of Cyrus. Cyrus is the Persian king who has conquered Babylon, where Daniel and his friends live, and has taken over Babylon, has actually conquered most of the known world at that time. And Cyrus does something incredibly important in history, and especially in biblical history, is that he sends home those who have been exiled in Babylon. So those that Nebuchadnezzar took away from their homeland and brought to Babylon, Cyrus sends them back. So many of God's people have actually returned to Jerusalem. They've returned to Israel, and they've settled back in their homeland. So at the time, actually, that Daniel is prophesying these things, a lot of those people, a lot of his brothers and sisters, have actually already left, and they're there. They're back. And furthermore, the prophets have been prophesying about this. And they've said some incredible things. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more weeping, no more distress. Jeremiah said something similar in chapter 31. He said, For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. But here's the thing. The folks are back in Jerusalem, but everything is not perfect. (laughs) Jerusalem is not renewed. It's not recreated. In fact, it's in rubble. It's in shambles. The city wall is still destroyed. The temple has been razed. God's people don't have the law written on their hearts. 
They're still searching after idols. They're still struggling with their own sin. So what's going on? If this is going to be made new, if things are going to change, if things are going to be different, why isn't it different? Why don't I see it? When I look around, why don't I see it all different anymore? Well, the answer is that we're not there yet. The answer from Daniel is that we're not there yet. And it's hard in the midst, isn't it? It's hard in the middle of things waiting for the promise to be fulfilled when you look around and you see it hasn't happened yet because the journey is still ongoing. When I was a kid, I I loved, I was fascinated by explorers, particularly I think the Spanish explorers. I don't know why. Like they had the tall boots and those really cool swords. And I just thought, you know, the explorers, like it was so cool to be an explorer. And I still think it's fascinating I'm fascinated by uh, going places that that nobody knows. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard to imagine, I think, for me, who, I don't don't know how to get anywhere anymore, by the way. I punch it into my little computer that I keep in my pocket, and it tells me where to go. But before computers and pockets, you know, people had to draw maps in order to get anywhere. And before the age of satellites and Google Earth, uh, there were just places in the world where you didn't know what they looked like. Because uh, nobody had drawn a map, because nobody had been there to look at it to draw the map. And so these folks who were exploring the world would be going literally to places where maybe there were some maps, and they were incomplete, and they were just kind of guesses that, you know, we think that's kind of what's going on over there, but we're not really sure. In the, in the Lewis and Clark Museum in St. Louis, uh, there's a map that, that Meriwether Lewis drew of, of the western United States before they took off on their journey. And he had kind of heard things, and there had been rumors of what, uh, what the West might look like. Uh, but there were some gaps in his map. One very conspicuous absence was the Rocky Mountains. Maybe they're like some little hills, and they'll be okay. Not so much. Could you imagine? Could you imagine moving westward and looking in the distance and seeing, oh, now that's different. We didn't expect that one. There's a mountain range there. And oh, by the way, it's a fairly substantial mountain range. And as you see it in the distance, you realize that's a pretty big mountain range. But as you get up close, it gets even scarier and scarier, right? Because as you get up close to the mountain, you see not only the incredible size of these mountains that are thousands and thousands of feet high, but once you get over that one mountain, it's not the Pacific Ocean, is it? It's more mountains and more mountains and more mountains. How daunting that would have been for those first settlers. And we've said this before, but really, biblical prophecy is a lot like looking at a mountain range from a long way away. Is that when God gives us these prophecies of what's coming up, it's kind of like looking at the Rockies, you know, from the Denver airport which is, you know, somewhere in the middle of Kansas, if you've ever flown into Denver, and you get into the Denver airport and you can see the Rocky Mountains over there on the other side of the city, and they look kind of two-dimensional, don't they? They look flat, like they're a painting. And they look gorgeous, and they look majestic, but it looks like, oh, there's the range, like it's just kind of one thing. But once you get up close, you see it's a lot more complicated, there's a lot more depth to it, it goes a lot further 
Maybe the things that you thought were all compressed into one little timeline to begin with are actually not compressed. They're more three-dimensional than two-dimensional. And that is very oftentimes what we get in the Bible. What gets projected to us is a two-dimensional picture. We see it. We see the reality of it. But actually, once we get closer to it, it expands and we realize it's three-dimensional. We get that actually all throughout Daniel. These prophecies that Daniel gives us are actually mixed. Sometimes they're the flattened kind of two-dimensional big-picture prophecy. Sometimes they're the more nuanced, more intricate, more detailed, three-dimensional, longer-term prophecy. And the tough part about interpreting Daniel is he kind of goes back and forth a lot. And sometimes he'll give us the little minuscule pieces, and sometimes he'll give us the big picture. When uh, when Nebuchadnezzar has that first dream, we get this huge big picture of the kingdoms of the world rising up and then being crushed by God's kingdom and of God reigning forever. Wonderful, two-dimensional, flat picture of Jesus reigning for all time. We need that. But then we get the little nuanced stuff too, don't we? The little pictures of the little horn and a guy like Antiochus, who we forget about in history, who was so important to God's people at that time. And we get into the minutiae. And we see the depth and the difference in those mountain ranges. And what makes it even more complex and difficult for us is that for Daniel, none of this stuff had happened. Okay, he's, he's Meriwether Lewis in St. Louis. And, and God is giving him a map of what's going to come about and nothing of it has happened. But for us, we actually get to look back on some of it and actually already see it. But we're looking forward still to other pieces of those prophecies. So we're like in the middle of these mountains, and we get over one mountain, and we think, okay, that must have been it, right? And then we see, oh no, there's actually something else. What is God doing here? So what are we to do with all of these prophecies? What are we to do particularly with, uh, with chapter 12 here, as Daniel really finishes out, and God says, closes up this book to preserve it for history, to give to those who are really going to need it? Well, let me disappoint you a little bit by telling you I'm not going to unravel all of these mysteries this morning. In fact, instead of focusing our time on the mountains, we're actually going to focus it on the maker of mountains. Instead of focusing our time uh, really on the journey, we're going to focus it on the driver. Instead of focusing on the map, we're going to focus our time on the maker of the map. And we're going to see what we can learn about the Lord so that we might actually move toward him and trust. We're going to see that God, throughout all of this, throughout all of the mountain ranges that we find ourselves even, is sovereign. He's in total control. He knows the beginning. He knows the end. He knows every time in between. And because of that, he is calling us to move our trust from those things that we oftentimes hold on to make sense of our world, to put it completely in him. So in our, in our short time we have left this morning, we're going to focus on three things. See, three things about God uh, that enable us to trust him more deeply. And that is, first of all, that God knows the outcome. Secondly, that God knows the timing. And thirdly, that God knows his people. All right, so let's look at those three. First, God knows the outcome. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been seen, and there will be an, uh, uh, since there was a nation until that time, but at that time your people will be delivered. 
God tells Daniel right out of the gate two things. A, there's going to be distress. B, there's going to be deliverance. He warns him there's going to be trouble coming up, but he tells him beforehand, you will be delivered. God lets Daniel and us, through Daniel, know that he is in complete control here, that he actually knows the outcome of these things. I I read uh, a commentator who gave a really fabulous illustration of this. He said, you know, think about it if you're a parent, like taking your child to the dentist. And you take your child to the dentist, and of course, every child loves the dentist. It's like a joy, like you mark it on your calendar. When can I go to the dentist again? Not so much. The dentist is utterly frightening. And if you're a parent, you're taking your child into something that you know is going to cause them both fear and also probably pain, right? Especially if that kid is getting a cavity filled. They're going to get a needle you know, shoved into the roof of their mouth and a drill put into their teeth. If you've never been to the dentist, I'm sorry, I just totally ruined it for you. Um, But, you know, it's a frightening experience. It's a painful experience. So why do parents willingly take their children into something like that? Well, it's because the parent knows more than the child, right? And the parent actually knows that not only is the outcome going to be secure and it's going to be over, but it's actually going to be better for the child, The parent knows the outcome, and so he takes the child willingly into something that is going to cause fear and pain and difficulty because he knows the outcome. That is what our Father is saying to us here in this passage. There's going to be hard times. There's going to be difficulty. You may personally feel like you're walking up the side of one of these mountains, and it's all over, and this has got to be the end. And corporately, God's people are going to feel like this. And there are going to be times where it feels like we just can't bear it anymore and it's going to be over. And God is telling his people, I know the outcome. Trust me. Move your trust to me. Locate your trust in the truth that I am in complete control of all things that I am actually working out my plan of salvation and deliverance for my people. Let me hold your hand and walk you through it. And yeah, it's going to be hard, but I've got this. Trust me. That's the first thing. The Lord knows the outcome, so we can trust him. Here's the second piece, though. Is that not only does God know the end and the outcome, but he actually knows the timing the timing of all that's in between. Listen uh, to verse 7 again. How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? That's what one of the angels asks. And here's the reply. And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. He goes on actually in verse 11 to say, From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. And then there's another number here. Blessed is the one who arrives at the 1,335 days. Well, I'm sure you guys don't need me to answer for you what in the world a time, times, and a half a time is. And uh, here's uh, the spoiler alert. 
I can't answer it because I have no idea what that means. And we could speculate about it a lot. Plenty of people have for the last couple of thousands of years. But here's the real main point. Don't, don't, let, don't let all of the dressing, uh, all the kind of window dressing here, uh, distract you from what God is really saying. Is that even though we don't understand what that time is, it is a definite period of time. What God is telling Daniel is, it's not going to be forever. And it's not even going to be completely undefined. God actually knows the amount of time. And though he has not let us in on all of the secret, he knows it fully and completely. Friends, this is a, this is a hard one. This is one that, that Christians wrestle with a lot. Trying to figure out kind of how do we do kind of all the math of figuring out when is it all going to end? How do I get there? Where are we there yet, right? But we're not called to do that. We're actually called, rather than to try and figure out all of the math that makes it work, we're called to trust the Lord who's already got it figured out. Much the same way that, you know, I get on board an airplane, and I sit down in an airplane, and, you know, they come by and they serve me drinks in the air, and I have no idea how an airplane works. I have no idea how flying works. It is completely beyond me. And you could sit down and talk to me about it for days, and I would never understand the physics of flying. But I know there are people that do, and I really hope the guy that's driving the plane knows a little bit of something about it, because I'm trusting him to get me to where I need to go. And man, we can run into so many pitfalls when we try to work on our side of the line in taking the things that should be on God's side of the line and bringing it to ours. I spent my ninth grade year at a, at a private school, a church school, um, and a, in, a, in a church tradition that was very different than the one that I grew up in. Uh, I grew up in kind of a, a very regular, straight-laced, traditional, fairly boring Methodist church. And I went to this school in ninth grade where they, boring was definitely not the word that would describe it. In fact, there were plenty of faculty members who at the time were very, very concerned with figuring out when Jesus was going to return. This was the late 80s. It was kind of in the water at the time, so I give them a pass for that. But we had one guy on the staff who would stand up in chapel and say, Jesus is coming back in a month and a half. And he told us the day and the hour it was happening. It was awkward the day afterwards. Uh, he had to do a little bit of backtracking. And I realized, I think, something even then as a ninth grader. A, there was a little bit of fear involved. But I think the day after it happened, I realized some sort of deep theological truth that I didn't even know how to put my finger on, which is that just doesn't seem like the stuff we should be trying to figure out. You know, Jesus actually tells his disciples that very plainly. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is, is about to ascend, right? He's, he's, he's risen to new life. His disciples, of course, are astounded, even though he told them he was going to do it. And they're asking him these questions that we would all ask. Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom? When are you going to make all things new? When are we going to get there? When is going to be that time where there's no more weeping and crying and mourning? When is it going to be that time where I don't have to wrestle with insecurity anymore? 
When is going to be the time where the first thought that enters my mind when my feet hit the floor and I get out of bed is what sort of stuff I can purchase to make me happy? When is it going to be that time where I don't have to be confronted with the same sin I was confronted with yesterday that I thought I was all finished with? When is it going to be that time where people do what they say they're going to do? Where people speak lovingly to each other? Where people help each other? Where there's joy and happiness and goodness, all the stuff we want. When is it going to happen? And they say to Jesus, when? When are you going to restore things? You know what Jesus' answer is? That's not yours to know. It's not yours to know the times and the places that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And we get a very disappointing answer that's actually wrapped in a very encouraging truth. The disappointing answer that it's not ours to figure out is wrapped in this incredible truth that the Father has, by his authority, fixed it. It is true. It is real. He knows it. Not just the outcome, but the timing. And we get to trust in his good care for us. Rather than try and figure it out, we get to trust that he's already got it done. That moves us to the third thing, is that not only does God know the outcome and the timing, God knows his people. This may be the most encouraging thing, I think, in this passage. Let me read to you again from verse 1. Daniel says this, There will be a time of trouble. And uh, you will be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. God says, I will deliver everyone whose name is found written in the book. This is actually the Bible's way of talking about a citizenship list, a roll call of God's people. What he's saying is that those people who are citizens in my kingdom, I'm going to be able to look down and see their name and I know you. And I love you, and I cherish you, and I have your name marked here. It's here. And he doesn't say some of the people that are written in the book, or like, you know, I'll throw a dart and see who we can hit, or we're just going to take the top 10%, you know, of those people, and they're going to get in. I don't have college on the brain or anything like that. Uh, you know, and he doesn't say, I'm just going to find my favorites, and we're going to get in. What does he say? Everyone whose name is written in the book will be delivered. I was listening to the radio in my car the other day, and uh, you know one of those promos came on. So-and-so band is coming to play at Green Hall, and we got some tickets. And if you call, and you're caller number nine, you know we'll give you the tickets. And so uh, I was like, man, I'm going to call this. I've never won anything in my life. But I'm going to um, pull over my car and appropriately dial my phone so that I can call the radio station. And uh, they answered, and she said, you're caller nine. Do you want to go to Green Hall Friday night? And, I mean, I, I could have been the only person that called. I don't know if I was actually caller nine. But the tickets were still there. And I said, yeah, absolutely I want to go. She said, okay, great. Show up there, and your name will be on the guest list. And so Joy and I went, and we stood in line, and we walked up, and there's the person kind of taking the tickets. And she said, great, do you have your ticket? And I said, my name's on the guest list. She was like, all right, well, let's check it out. McCollum, too. I was like, it's, it's like written there. It's it printed, my name, like for VIPs here. And so we just waltzed right into the show because our names were on the guest list. 
Isn't that great? It's exactly what God is saying to Daniel and his people here. Your names are written down. They're there. If you belong to Jesus by faith, if you have trusted in his life for your life, in his death for your death, in his resurrection for your new life, your name is written in his blood, and it is not going to be erased. Isn't this an incredible encouragement? Can you imagine what God's people would have thought as they were going through the kind of difficulty that they went through in somebody like Antiochus Epiphanes? Remember that story I told a couple of weeks ago about this terrible ruler from Greece who came and really had the desire to completely wipe out God's people, and he was killing Jews, and he was banning things like circumcision, and he was destroying the temple, and he was desecrating God's holy places. And to read then, in the time where the government makes you feel like you aren't even human, God knows you. He loves you. He cherishes you. Can you imagine being a slave in the Confederate South and being told over and over that your life was worth nothing more than the couch that they had in the living room or the cattle that roamed out in the field, that you simply were property to be bought and sold for somebody else's pleasure? And then to open up Daniel 12 and to hear God say to you, your name is written I love you, I cherish you, you're mine forever. I think, you know, there are people who've lost jobs, who've lost parents, who've lost retirement accounts, who've lost friends, who at this point now in their lives, you know, very many people are thinking, I don't know if it could get much worse to open up something like Daniel 12 and to read, my name is written in his book. He knows me. He loves me. He cherishes me. How do we respond to this wonderful God? How do we respond to a God who knows not only the end, but all the timing in between, and he knows us better than we know ourselves? Well, I think we can actually respond like God calls Daniel to respond here at the end. It's a really beautiful verse right at the end of Daniel 12. To cap out the entirety of this book, this is what God tells Daniel he's supposed to do. Go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. God simply tells Daniel to go about his business, to keep plodding along faithfully, to keep refusing to bow to the next idol, to keep moving toward his neighbors and away from their worldview system, to keep faithfully doing what God has put in front of him, even to serve the people around him who believe something very different than he does. God is calling us to do the same. The message that we have seen throughout the book of Daniel is that we are to long for home even as we live here in the place that is not yet our home. How do we do that well? Well, we put one foot in front of the other. We act faithfully with what God has given us. And we cling more tightly to the one who knows the outcome of all things, the timing of all things, and who knows us well. And then we can rest. 
we can rest in hope of the resurrection. May the Lord enable us to do that even now. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are thankful for these passages that, Lord, it was confusing to Daniel, it's confusing to us, but Lord, what is so clear is that you are a God who is not only in complete control of everything, but you actually are working things for our good. Lord, we thank you for this promise. We thank you for the way that that promise was fulfilled in the incarnation. We thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate that. And we thank you, Lord, that that is the deposit that we get to know that your promises will be true in the future as well. Show us how to trust you in the meantime, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.